This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Honolulu City Prosecutor Steve Alm recently announced efforts to change the way his office probes officer-involved fatal cases. He also plans to renew efforts to strengthen anti-crime weed and seed programs in hotspot neighborhoods across Oahu. Here's Alm. When I was U.S. Attorney, I kind of led the effort working with Miley Kanemaru and many people in the community, right? Nobody gets anything done by themselves. It's all working together, HPD, all the law enforcement, but then all the social service agencies and the like. But when I left as U.S. attorney, it didn't get the attention. In essence, the seed part has always been there. And in fact, they made a 501c3. There's a weed and seed board now, Inc. But to get weed and seed, you need to have both weed and seed. You know, the seed part has always been around, but I always thought if I ever get back in a position to do it again, I will certainly try to resurrect the whole complement of things. And so we are looking at getting the weed component back, working with the seed and and reinvigorating it in Kalihi Palama in Chinatown. Okay. And so we've just kind of neglected it. <laughs> the, uh, the, the weeds have come back. Uh, yeah. and uh, we just need to get, get in there and beat them yeah. back again. And, and part of the model is you talk to the community about issues that, because they know their community, right? I live in Kamuki. I don't know exactly. So when we had, uh, the first time, we had stew and rice at Kailani Elementary School, and we asked the folks there, and they said, well, you're the expert. Uh, I said, what crime problems do you have? What social services do you think you could benefit from? They said, well, you're the expert. And I said, yeah, but I don't live here. And so they, they raised the open drug dealing on Pool Lane, which was a big concern. But they also said uh, people speed up and down Pool Lane getting between King Street and Vineyard, and we're not going to let our kids play outside because they'll chase a ball into the street and get run over. So in, in like the space of two weeks, the city council put up speed humps on poor lane. Cheap, but it solved the problem that they identified. Now, with COVID, we can't have those kind of community meetings. So we're really fortunate that uh, some banks and some other folks are getting together and a survey is going to be done in Kalihi Palama and Chinatown in the next several weeks. So residents and businesses can identify issues, problems, and the like. And that will re- help us inform exactly, you know, what we're going to do, what we'll attack, what we'll go after. Well, let's talk about Chinatown, because yeah. I have been uh, monitoring that one website, Chinatown Watch, you know, and it, 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 it was born out of frustration of uh, folks that work and live down there. Uh, because they just felt enough wasn't being done to address, you know, some of the mental health issues mm. of the homeless down there, you know, the crime. Yeah. And it it, it 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 just it is startling when you go on there and see some of those visuals. You know, nothing's yeah. nothing's blurred out. It's all there for everyone to see. And some of it is 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 hard hard to to look at. Some of the captions are are hard to take. Uh, you know, because a lot of these folks that are are images are on there you know they're 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 mentally ill and and it's uh it's just a sad situation so let's talk about what you want to see down there well uh we we will we've been working with the police we've been assessing things there's a lot to set up for this um you know working with the courts on how we're going to handle the cases that come up but it's really a two-pronged strategy because compared to the last time 
I don't know if crime, uh, you know, and I, I don't, I'm a big believer in data and research, not anecdote, not gut feeling, not we've always done it that this way. And that's how, you know, criminal justice system is often operated. Uh, and we're getting the data on it. But, the, but, but just my gut feeling tells me that the crime may not be quite as bad. The homeless situation, the mental health issues is, is definitely worse. So we're going to try to address both issues. We're working with the different parts of HPD. We're working with, you know, the different law enforcement component. We've talked to district court. We've talked to circuit court, chief justice. Uh, so the court system is getting ready, and HPD is our biggest partner in that. So when arrests are made, how to handle it, and the like. But because of my background as the HOPE judge and as drug court judge, I've developed a very good relationship with all the drug treatment programs. And we are also, at the same time, certain people are going to get arrested for, you know, breaking the law, assault, disorderly conduct, drinking in public, that kind of stuff. We also are going to try to help the chronically homeless get into treatment. And it's a challenging time for the treatment programs. The judiciary's budget for drug and alcohol mental health treatment has been cut by 80%. But the drug treatment programs know that people need help, so... They are stepping up. We're going to work with them on doing that. So we're hoping to help a bunch of the homeless get help for their drug and alcohol and mental health problems. Because if you put somebody into housing, and I really applaud the efforts to do that, but if you don't deal with the behavioral health issues, you're not going to solve the problem because either they're going to be smoking crack or mess in their rooms. They're going to get kicked out of housing. They'll bring their friends there, or they'll just leave and go back to Hotel Street. And so we got to deal with both issues. And I was really happy to see the legislature pass a bill that would allow the mentally ill to get help that they need. And the bill removes the public defenders from the equation and adds a guardian ad litem. Connie Mitchell at IHS has tried to work on this. It's been extremely difficult in the past because almost nobody would qualify you know, the public defenders were doing their jobs and representing the client's interests, even though the client would say, I don't have a mental health problem, I don't need any help. And the public defenders would felt duty-bound to, of course, to represent that position, even though that's not in the best interest of that person. And so I hope the governor does not veto it and it moves forward, because that will allow us to help the people with a truly mental illness to get the help they need. So are there other jurisdictions on the mainland that have this as a model? They do, but they've been struggling with it for the exact same reason. So I'm really excited about what we've been able to do. San Francisco tried it, but it only affected a very few people. Under the old law here, I think only one person was helped with it. But as Connie Mitchell said, the guy was still homeless, but he was now taking medication. You could talk to him. You could reason with him. It made all the difference in the world. So I'm hoping, because we are going to find people in Chinatown that don't have drug issues or don't have any drugs on them, you know, and aren't going to get arrested for that, but are clearly mentally ill. They're howling at the moon, and they need help, and I'm hoping we can help them. Because I am very very sympathetic to a business owner who's got a homeless person living in their doorway and defecating there, and the person has to clean the sidewalk every morning, and that homeless person is the most miserable person in Honolulu. But if they have a drug and alcohol problem, I think we can help them. So 
you know, it is going to be kind of an all-inclusive thing. If people are breaking the law in other respects, we'll deal with that. But if people have a drug and alcohol mental health problems, we're going to try to get them the help they need, too. And I know that there's been an issue with the cameras uh, there in Chinatown. You know, that Waikiki has them, and they also have the funding from the hoteliers, you know, to have working cameras. And I understand that uh, a lot of those cameras there in Chinatown are just out of commission. Yeah. Well, and part of the problem with cameras is you have to have somebody watching the camera, even if it's working, you know, to monitor it and then tell a police officer, oh, it looks like this crime is happening here. I can tell you when this gets rolling, I have every confidence that we are going to bring Chinatown back, that we are going to clean it up. The police are invested in this. They knew what we did last time. And the statistics were absolutely remarkable when we did this the first time. Crime dropped. The first year of implementation, there were like 7,600 misdemeanors. By the fourth year, it was down to 2,600. It went from 3,000 felonies down to 746. That changed the character of Chinatown and Kalipalama. And this is everybody working together. It's a, it's a whole you know, team effort. But I don't think the renaissance that happened in Chinatown with all the restaurants, the hipster bars, the art places, the clothing stores ever would have happened without that community effort of which Weed and Seed was a part. Local people wouldn't park their cars there. They thought they'd get vandalized. They were worried about getting assaulted. Now, I have to say things have slid back. So it's not like that anymore, that it's safe and clean and everything. But it will be again. I have every confidence that working together, we'll be able to do that. You know, we're in a situation now, okay, you're back in office. We have a new mayor. We will soon have a new police chief. And so hopefully there will be kind of a change in attitude and we can make some more headway in this area. So you're mainly focusing on the weed and seed in Kalihipalama, Chinatown. I recall you had it out in Waipahu, too. I remember covering it over And again, you know, they're still doing seed stuff in Waipahu, in the Pupu Street area, Aniani Place, as well as Eva Eva Beach. But we've got to prove this again, proof of concept. And so we'll focus first on Kalihipalama and Chinatown. But then it will be bringing the weed component, working with the seed and all their efforts, first in Kalipalama and Chinatown, but then back in Waipahu and Eva Eva Beach and hopefully other communities. Because the last time it was Kalipalama and Chinatown, but then it extended over to uh, Keomoku and, you know, that part of Kaka'ako. And if it works in different neighborhoods, and I don't think there's any reason why it won't, it can expand to other neighborhoods. It's a strategy more than a program. And I recall during those times we had a really bad problem with youth gangs. Mm-hmm. We certainly, you know, made a concerted effort to try and tackle that problem, although it was mentioned, I think, in the Waikiki Safety Conference recently. Yes. And I don't know, you know, what you're hearing or what you're, you're seeing out there. Well, you know, the weed and seed component, there, there are all sorts of things. You know, Waikiki would be a natural. We've got to go back to where we started first, but Waikiki would be a natural. And, you know, that is the center of sex trafficking, and our office is really stepping up our efforts on that. 
teenage girls and boys getting involved in sex trafficking because the visitor industry is made, you know, to facilitate that. And the visitor industry is very helpful in trying to do work in helping to stamp that out. And our part of that role is prosecuting pimps for getting girls and boys, 75% are teenage girls and 25% are teenage boys, but I'd say the runaway girls are the most vulnerable population. And so we're working with all the components, whether it's Susanna Wesley, whether it's Ho'ola Napua, who just opened their 30-bed facility for teenage girls as a place when they get to pull them out of the business, a place to live and heal and get the counseling they need. And my guess is every runaway teenage boy and girl on this island at some point is in Waikiki. So eventually, if we're able to expand this kind of effort to Waikiki, that would be a real important focus of it at the same time. We have been talking with Honolulu City Prosecutor Steve Alm about refocused efforts on the weed and seed anti-crime community programs. We'll hear more about the challenges of restoring trust in his office and in the Honolulu Police Department right after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. People have always wanted to be a part of their communities, but you have to go where there are opportunities. It's long been presumed that people will move to places where there are jobs, but is that changing? Will people have to move less because jobs come to them? And I think the extent that you can now build and maintain and repair social capital and economies in these places, definitely people are going to want to stay. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Joyful Return, a museum-wide exhibition featuring a presentation of modern and contemporary highlights from the permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We have been talking with Honolulu City Prosecutor Steve Alm about his vision for tackling crime and corruption as he has just marked 100 days in elected office. You held a news conference last week to address the recent police fatal shootings. Yes. And, you know, one of them involved a minor and uh, other minors that were involved in the uh, little crime spree, I guess, that led up to that shooting. I was wondering about, you know, that whole element of the juvenile crime, uh, you know, and, and I know you probably can't say too much because right. the, the case is still being investigated, but uh, what was the message that you were trying to underscore with this case and then the other case of the Nu'uanu shooting? Well, you know, 
the message is that the prosecutor's office in the past would wait for the Honolulu Police Department to do their entire investigation, and then they would send over their reports for the prosecutors to review. That process often took more than a year. And I thought, you know, we can do a lot better than that. So we are now involved in investigating both of those, which are officer-involved, you know, shootings of civilians. And we are, are now investigating both cases. The police have been very cooperative. They sent over all the evidence, the body-worn cameras, the police reports, all the rest of it. We're doing investigation. I've set up separate teams, and there are three of them, to be looking independently at each of those. Now, there's no question. The Honolulu Police Department has many investigators. They can investigate all of these crimes. I have no reason to doubt they didn't do a good job in the last 20 years of investigating those. And I'm not saying the prosecutors, prior prosecutors, did not do a good job of reviewing that. But when you have the agency that's involved in the shooting uh, doing the investigation, there are always going to be questions in people's minds about the outcome, you know, and whether it's suspect or not. And so we will be working with them. We've gotten their information, but we will do an independent review of it. And at the same time, in an ideal world, there would be a totally separate agency to do this investigation, not answerable to the state attorney general, not answerable to the Honolulu prosecutor, not answerable to the U.S. attorney's office made up of experienced prosecutors who've done a lot of homicide cases, made up of experienced investigators, but both groups would have to be current on techniques and trial strategies. There is no such operation at present and nothing on the horizon. You know, there, there was a, a group, the Law Enforcement Independent Review Board, but but they are not equipped to do this. They don't do original investigations. They review reports. They're volunteers. The place where you have people that have done the most homicides that are prepared to do it is this office. So clarification, you will have two teams in your office? I mean, three, three teams, teams? Not two. Three teams. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's just to provide Oops. enough of a reach to independently come to right. a conclusion? Led by the division chiefs of our three big trials divisions felony trials division, and investigators working together to do an independent look at this. So do you and have enough personnel to cover all that? Yes. And at the same time, I mean, and, and we will conduct this in an expedited but thorough and deliberate fashion because the public is very interested. I completely get that. At the same time, as I said at the press conference, we are not going to be releasing you know, body cam footage. We're not going to be releasing, you know, police reports because each agency is different. They each have their own rules and regulations. But as prosecutors, we have to follow the Hawaii Supreme Court's Hawaii Rules of Professional Conduct. And they have a specific section, 3.6, about trial publicity. And it says a lawyer who is participating in the investigation or litigation of a matter, that means us, shall not make any extrajudicial statement, and that would include statements by me releasing evidence and the like, that the lawyer knows or reasonably should know will be disseminated by means of public communication and will have a substantial likelihood of material prejudicing an adjudicative proceeding in the matter. And so 
you know, you see people on different news stations now opining about whether the police did the right thing or the wrong thing. That's more on the Nuwano matter. But they're all basing it on incomplete information. Some of them are lawyers who have a, you know, a dog in the fight. And, and I'm afraid the public watching this might think these are authoritative figures and they will have prejudged the case. So if we decide to charge you know, a police officer with, with crimes in any of these matters, people coming into the jury may have already made up their mind about it. And so we will, you know, and this is nothing new. This is the way I've been operating since I've been here. But it, it was the way I operated when I was the United States attorney. So whether it was the Gary Rodrigues, you know, head of UPW, whether it was Clyde Hayami, a police sergeant who we prosecuted and sent to prison for civil rights violations, whether it was a poly golf course shooting, or most recently the assistant U.S. attorneys from uh, San Diego when they prosecuted the Kailoas, you know, the chief and Catherine Kailoa, the prosecutor supervisor, they never released any information unless until there was an indictment. And then they would talk about the charges. So this is, to me, just the ethical best way to proceed. And I know people are are very interested. We would just ask them to have patience, and we will we will be dealing with this, like I said, in an expedited fashion. You know, in the past, I've recalled covering many crime scenes, you know, homicide scenes, where it was a big deal when the police chief showed up on scene or the city prosecutor, you yeah. know, Keith Kaneshiro uh, would often show up, and and you know, we knew something was up because you know they don't show up. To every case. And I know that there was a change in that uh, under Chief Ballard. Uh, I don't know. Will we see you out on the scene uh, of some of these events? Very unlikely, because I'm not going to do anything for publicity value. And, and any officer-involved shooting is a big deal in and of itself. So, you know, if there's value added by having, you know, one of the prosecutor supervisors who's going to be involved in the investigation, then, then you may well see a prosecutor supervisor there. But for me, you know, if that's to get camera attention, I have absolutely no interest in that. I don't think it uh, adds to it. Uh, you know, I'm here to do a job, and my main job is to restore trust to the prosecutor's office. And I think we've made great strides in doing that. That is our North Star. That's the guiding light in everything we do. But we will be, as I said, much more active providing an independent review of it. And, and like I said, ideally there'd be an independent agency that would do this. I'd rather have that because we work with the police closely on, you know, the 99% of our other cases. But until that day happens, we are in the best position of any of the law enforcement agencies in the state to investigate and we're the ones who'd be prosecuting it if we decide to charge any police officers. So we are the natural right place to do an investigation and any subsequent prosecution. Well, Steve, um, we certainly thank you for your time this morning. Very good to talk to you, Catherine. That was Honolulu City Prosecutor Steve Alm, who is a former U.S. attorney and judge.
For today's reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat has an update on a developing story about a spiritual cult that landed on Kauai during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Alan Parikini joins us this morning. Hi, Alan. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, I saw the the headlines the other day about this cult leader who was a, apparently died, what, in Colorado? Well, she didn't die in Colorado, for, uh, but I think it's uh, important to be clear that there hasn't been autopsy confirmation uh, that this uh, decomposed body uh, found in a house in Crestone, Colorado last week is, in fact, uh, uh, Amy Carlson, the founder of the Love Has Won cult. Uh, I think the prospect that it, that it is her are, is very strong, but we don't have that confirmation yet. And where she died exactly and when is not yet clear. They executed a search warrant yesterday on a car in Colorado that uh, apparently had been used to transport the remains in question from wherever they came from, probably California, uh, to Colorado. So uh, the mystery is not yet uh, is not yet resolved, uh, and the the mysteries about this cult uh, continue. <clears throat> I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, and, and refresh uh, uh, the memories of our for our listeners out there. So this was a cult that landed on Kauai, and I think they were going to set up shop here, right? They uh, rented a, a, a large beach, a very extensive beachfront house, and several hotel rooms in Lihui, uh, and indicated that they were permanently relocating uh, from, uh, from Colorado to Kauai. However, uh, they weren't very, shall we say, uh, amicably received by the, the, the community on Kauai, and there were demonstrations outside the house. There was one night uh, in particular when uh, a group of mob of local people attacked the house, broke a lot of the windows, all but destroyed a car that was there. Uh, and Mayor Derek Kalkami the following day or a day or two later uh, persuaded them that perhaps they were not welcome here and offered them essentially safe passage with a police escort to the airport. Uh, which they took. They then flew to Maui and were turned away from the Maui airport because they didn't have appropriate COVID uh, 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 lodging uh, reservations. Uh, and they went back on to the Bay Area and had kind of dropped out of, <clears throat> out of sight for those of us who follow them only casually. Uh, but then here we are with Amy Carlson, uh, very likely dead, under mysterious circumstances, seven adults arrested, two children uh, found in a bedroom, a closed bedroom, uh, where in the same house where the, this apparently somewhat decomposed body was found. Uh, it's all pretty weird. Yeah, and, and I, I've seen numerous reports, and again, like you said, they're trying to verify some of this information, but, uh, you know, they talked about, you know, maybe they were in... Uh, in the Shasta area in California, and, uh, you know, there were stories about how she had her, the body was strung up in Christmas lights, uh, but yeah, so a lot of facts need to be kind of run down. It seems clear that they had been in the Shasta area uh, quite recently. Whether that's where she died, I don't think we know yet, uh, and where, about Christmas lights stringing around the body, I've seen that. Uh, I my feeling about this is that you need to be careful how far you go and when. And 
Uh, I wasn't able to verify the Christmas lights part of this. I don't doubt that it might be true, but uh, it's not close enough to be able to use it yet. Right. So it's a very strange story. Uh, uh, Lots of uh, uh, things swirling around this. But, you know, if I recall, wasn't she uh, not in good health when she was here? She was in a wheelchair or something? Her followers had said when she was on Kauai that she was in ill health. Uh, There was video of her in the uh, Lihui Airport, I believe, in a wheelchair. Uh, There was some uh, concern about whether that was on the level or not. Uh, But I've seen video quite recently before uh, Facebook, or I'm sorry, before the search engines took down their website a couple days ago. Uh, I was able to see some video of her being carried into a room uh, and put down in the chair to participate in a video live stream. So, uh, and it's also, it's, it's quite well known, she had a serious drinking problem. She was uh, clearly alcoholic. She was clearly uh, not uh, in, a, in a healthy way mm-hmm. uh, in mental health. Uh, so there was a lot going on with her. Uh, both physically and mentally, uh, and this is where we are. Okay, well, hopefully uh, we will know soon uh, some of these facts get buttoned down. But thanks so much, Alan. Sure enough. Have a good day. All righty. That was Alan Parikini with today's Reality Check. Check out his story online at civilbeat.org. This past weekend, the American Youth Soccer Organization, ASO, kicked off scrimmage games for its many teams. We talked to Clyde Asato, Section Director for ASO Hawaii, about how it's managing the players and families during this pandemic. You know, we understand the kids have not been out playing for over a year. So uh, we're not, uh, although they're competing to win, it's not like it's the World Cup. So, <laughs> you know, hopefully we didn't. No one, um, you know, on top of that, they're all having to wear a mask. And so hopefully no one's getting too winded out there. We just played our first games this past Saturday. And uh, I went out to take a look at YPO Field. And, I mean, it looked, it looked okay. Like nobody was getting out of hand. The parents uh, there, when I went by anyway, they were all being good about um, not coming to the field. I guess the parks people said, it was kind of okay for them to, if they're going to come out of their car to watch the game, that they got to keep their mask on. Yes, and that's what you I know? saw uh, at a park in yeah. East uh, Honolulu where the parents right. were being very mindful. They were just hanging out by their cars, and the kids were mm-hmm. on the field with the coaches. You know, I think um, most of the people, most of the parents, I think, I would say like 90 95%, they understand the situation for the kids where they haven't been out there with their friends playing for over years. So this is really a season for, for the kids, I think, whether it's like football, baseball, soccer. Uh, so hopefully the adults can all behave and we can get through this season without the county shutting us down. So <laughs> when does the season end? Uh, we're going to play. So, you know, normally like our season for the older kids would be from, Older kids, meaning teenagers, 
would run from like maybe March through end of May, and we would end in June because we were not playing June only because of high school graduations and uh, people taking trips. But with uh, since we just started uh, a couple of weeks ago, practicing anyway, um, we thought we might as well run the season through end of June because under the latest orders from the mayor, there's no tournament. So normally we would have a tournament in early July but that's not allowed. So um, we're just going to run the scrimmage season all the way through end of June, which is kind of unusual for us to do that. For the younger kids, like um, the 8 through 11s, a lot of them are playing within their own region, but for some of the smaller regions, they don't have enough 10 and 11-year-olds to play in regions, so they're doing interregional play among the other regions on Oahu. But for the really young kids, like I think the four through seven years old, most of the regions have decided not to run a program for that age group. There might be out of the 12 regions in Oahu, maybe three or four regions at most that are running a program for that age. And I think a lot of that is just a concern that with that age group, it would be a lot more difficult to explain to the kids you know, the the things like no high five, no hugging. No pizza, no juice. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. Because right now that's what's happening is the game is over, then you just leave. There's no snack or nothing. They shouldn't even be getting together for a small snack. They should just be getting out of there because even though we staggered the game times, the next group is going to arrive about mm, – we told them not to get on the field until 30 minutes before game time. And so they might get there like 45 minutes before the game. And so there might be a little bit of um, overlap. Yeah, people leaving just when the other people are coming in. Maybe we don't do potlucks like baseball, but <laughs> I remember when my son played baseball, we'd be at Waimalu Elementary School from the morning time when they played the game, and we'd be there till past dinner time. Well, I've heard about those uh, infamous baseball like buffets. <laughs> they have chafing dishes and everything. It's pretty elaborate. They're snacks. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, they don't do that in, in soccer for the most part, you know, but usually they would save that. The soccer teams would save that for, like, uh, for sure, in a season celebration and uh, giving out of awards if there's any. And then you might do, like, uh, one early in the season just so people can get to know each other. I remember doing that when I was coaching a team. But um, it's kind of good in a way that they, they have to leave and go home because it makes it a shorter day for other parents. Instead of hanging out at the field, you can you know go on and do something else. In the news recently, there was a story about how I think it was a league that went, I think, to Vegas to play. It was older mm. kids, and they came back and they got sick with COVID. Yeah, I mean, I'm just surprised that there's states that would allow those type of tournaments to be held. So that's one thing. Usually in July, AYSO had one tournament, and I think some of the club teams like Leahi, Bulls, and the Rush, uh, they all had tournaments too. And that, you know, everyone would have teams coming from the mainland. The Bulls used to have teams coming from Asia. The Bulls, but, that's right. You know, of course, I don't believe any of that is happening in um, we're happy that Mayor Blangiardi uh, allowed outdoor sports to oh, get yeah. back on the field. And I think the biggest concern, and maybe you see this more in baseball than soccer, but 
the biggest concern is when the kids are not playing. So when they're on the side of the field, like a pregame or postgame or like halftime in soccer, that's when, you know, the gathering occurs or could occur. And so you would have to um, social distance them, make sure they're wearing a mask and all that, or in fact, just totally avoid those type of gatherings. But it's much harder in baseball where every half inning you have the entire team coming in to, to bat, you know, and so... I think that's the biggest concern because once mm-hmm. they're actually playing, whether it's baseball, like football, soccer, and the physical activity, I think the risk is not as um, great as it is when the kids are just standing around. Hopefully we can uh, keep the kids out on the field until the end of June at least. That was Clyde Asato, the section director for the American Youth Soccer Organization here in Hawaii. You know, we also asked about the sponsorship for the league. You know, Metagold has long been a supporter and major sponsor of AYSO, but recently declared bankruptcy. Asato says there are currently talks underway about how that relationship can continue going forward. Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR, where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. Hawaii artist Cameron Samimi grew up in Lapahoehoe on Hawaii Island. He has two exhibits featured here on Oahu. One entitled In Stillness is at the Honolulu Museum of Art. The second is at the Doris Duke Estate, the Shangri-La Museum of Islamic Art, Culture, and Design. That sculptural show is entitled Sanctuaries. Samimi is the first Hawaii artist to be featured at Shangri-La, where he has been able to explore his Persian roots, Samimi's father is from Iran and his mother is Scandinavian. Both were longtime teachers on the Big Island. Samimi was last there in Lapahoehoe just before the shutdown at the beginning of last year. He now lives here on Oahu, but it is a memory of going home that he treasures dearly. You know, I went last January before COVID, and I'm really grateful I got to be there then and anxious to go back sometime soon. Yeah, I just remember, gosh, you know, driving there, you know, up the coast and the bridges. Oh, my gosh. the Just oh, the yeah. vistas are really, uh, really incredible up there. Yeah, it's so beautiful, and it wraps around you, you know. Wherever you are, you're just surrounded and immersed in it. What has that upbringing in Lapahoehoe done for your, your vision of art and vision of the world? Well, I would think most of my worldview, my artistic practice. Most of my work directly comes from my experience growing up there. And the way I phrase it is sort of like listening to the language of nature. And, you know, when you're there in that place, it's, as I said, it surrounds you. It kind of seeps into every aspect of one's life. And so it's these things that processes and things that I've observed in my life, moments where I've kind of encountered the sublime in just everyday life. 
watching the sunrise from Mauna Kea, you know. I mean, that's not everyday life. It's a very special experience, but it's also something that is within reach if you, you know, if you live there, you grow up there. Watching lava pour into the sea, misty morning over, you know, the green hills in Waimea. And as far as materials, you know, art materials, I mean, it's even finding the sublime in intimate moments, like, you know, looking at an eroded stone and seeing the entire universe in that stone or a weathered piece of driftwood. It's the macroscopic, but also the microscopic. This exhibit that you have in stillness, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking at the the three-dimensional form that you had, you know, using the Japanese paper, and and it reminded me of, you know, origami, you know, and, but it was, so it was kind of stillness, but in motion. Yeah, so, so that's kind of, again, that's sort of like the pace of nature or really... Uh, the guiding force of nature, which is like the passage of time, you know, that's kind of what what animates all things in nature. And so that installation, but also the four paintings that surround it, are sort of my way of visualizing immaterial force that's beyond the physical change, time, impermanence. And that sculptural object is a visu- visualization of change, an embodiment of it. So your time there at the Doris Duke Museum, what's that been like? It's been, it's been in all ways an incredible year for all of us. And, you know, my residency down there was originally supposed to be six months, which already is quite long. Most artists in residence are there for two weeks, which I can't imagine. But because I'm Hawaii-based, uh, it was supposed to be six months, and then fortunately for me, it got extended to a full year. And just the, the way I think about it is like having deep time down at that very interesting, very unique place on Earth. I was able to kind of observe and absorb things that I think many artists are not able to access, because if you're there for two weeks, it's like, you know, you do this, this, and this, and then that's it. You're gone. But to just kind of spend the whole day walking around and not thinking about what artwork am I going to make, but rather just listening to the waves, you know, below the property, looking at this one particular exposed rock formation, which some of my paintings are actually rubbings taken from those particular stones, just watching, observing, letting it soak in. I feel like it was really meaningful for me. And not just Shangri-La in its natural aspects, which, you know, because of my upbringing, and my, my interest in like this, you know, as I said, the language of nature, um, like that language speaks very clear to me so I can hear it easily. But the more complicated uh, and more, I guess, hidden or distant language is that of my ancestry. Um, so coming from a father who is from Iran, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why I was able to work down at Shangri-La is because of my connection to Iran. And that's always something, you know, growing up here um, as an Iranian, whatever that might mean to an individual, it's sort of like it was always de-emphasized because I wanted to not stand out, not be different. I'm already, you know, tall, tall Holly boy <laughs> and <laughs> with a weird name, you know, and so it's like... I just want to be one of one with everyone else, you know, and 
And so I, I don't speak Farsi. You know, I don't look what people think of as like Iranian or Persian. But I've always questioned, you know, what does it mean to be of this background? And what does it mean to me? What does it mean to the rest of the world, you know? And spending this time down at Shangri-La really encouraged me because, you know, you're surrounded by all of this history from many places in that region, which is the Islamic world, but a lot of it is from Iran. And so what is what does this mean to me? You know, what does this artwork mean to me? How do I connect to it? How don't I connect to it? And um, I was confronted with these things. And ultimately, this is a really long answer, but, you know, the installation in the courtyard down there is a monument which connects me to my ancestors in a way that I've never really addressed through my art. It's always been just thoughts and feelings and, you know, that it hasn't out, been output into my artwork. So that was a enlightening but also really meaningful uh, to spend that time observing my thoughts and my feelings and my questions and, you know, giving them a physical form. What a great opportunity for you to be able to explore those roots there and then you're you know, through your art as well. I mean, I, I just yeah. look at things differently. You know, I had my, my uh, DNA, you know, <laughs> done, and I was just so intrigued mm-hmm. to learn about, oh, I'm a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and it really made me look differently at the cultures. You know, I mm. look differently at, 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 at England and, uh-huh. and France because your ties are there, you know, or Spanish and uh, uh, Portuguese. And, and so you, I think, just, I don't know, you, you you look at it with fresh eyes, I guess. That's interesting to discover this this connection that is suddenly more personal, right? Because it's inside of you, you know. Yeah, it's, it's literally under your skin, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I imagine, yeah, I mean, because you were pretty much raised in a pretty magical place there in in La Pahoy mm. Hoy, you know, the connection with nature, and then that museum, the Doris Duke uh, Estate. I mean, gosh, it's so open to the elements so you can't not feel that area there mm-hmm. it's really a powerful place i mean and it's kind of fraught with this very layered history and there's a lot that can be said about you know the building itself the, the construction the site but then for me to kind of transcend and and go back in time almost and think about you know the earth that's beneath the museum and the earth that's beneath all of the homes and all of the structures and everything that humans have have built you know and started to transcend all of that but connect to the source which is ultimately all of you know our source that's our home the one home that we all have in common uh and the ocean you know it's just right there it's like it's, it's a complete picture of the world there it's the earth and the sea and um that was very available and very uh present while i was down there at shangri-la so when when they say artists and residents i mean do you actually get to stay down there (laughs) well that's what everyone asks um and yeah well the thing is that usually they do so when they're here for two weeks the artists and residents they come from you know uh, the Middle East or elsewhere, they do stay down there. But because I live close by, I didn't actually spend a night down there. We talked about it, 
but then ultimately it didn't happen. I imagine you spent so much time there. You've probably seen the kids jumping off the breakwater wall. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and you know my first—I never, uh, I've never done that. But my first time seeing Shangri-La was like 20 years ago. My brother and I were borrowing somebody's kayak, and we just were kayaking, you know, past like Cromwell's and going down. And I looked up and I was like, "Oh man, how's that crazy Middle Eastern palace up there?" And I had no idea what Shangri-La was, and. It's just so interesting how one's perception from below of that museum is, you know, something almost larger than life where it's like floating in this uh, this weird place. It's untouchable. Um, and then to be on the other side working at Shangri-La and then looking down at the people and also the ocean, and it's almost like there's this separation that's actually kind of strange. You know, when they look up at you, it's kind of like, no, I'm I'm not so different from you guys. Don't look at me like that. You know, it, it's it's very interesting that shift. It, um, what a mind blowing experience, though, from just yeah. you know first seeing it up there on that bluff, and then being immersed in the art uh, and having mm. your work uh, displayed there. And and I have to ask, yeah. I'm hoping that the museum will be opening soon so that folks can uh, can go there and enjoy the exhibit. Yeah, their plan, and I don't speak for the museum, so um, people should check the ShangriLaHawaii.org. Uh, but their plan is to reopen tours in uh, July. So the tours will probably be done kind of like the old system from HOMA, and then there will be self-guided tours. So, And my exhibition will stay up until October 2nd. We've been hearing from Hawaii artist Cameron Samimi, who has two exhibits underway at the Honolulu Museum of Art as well as at Shangri-La. Head to our website for links. Okay, we're all pal for today. Tomorrow, we talk revisiting tourism with Senator Glenn Wakai. And don't forget, it's Teacher Appreciation Week. Tell us who your favorite teacher is. We want to hear your story. Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Or send us an email at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you missed any part of the show, you can listen to it again by checking out our podcast on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Or use the conversation page on the HPR mobile app. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.